welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, directors, writers, actors, cinematographers, production designers, uh, costume designers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, composers, you name it, we talk to them. And hopefully we're going to be doing a lot of talking today with some guests that are coming to us live from Toronto Film Festival. Um, And I'm looking and we should have one of them calling in now. And so far (laughs) we do not. Uh, so we may be taking a break <laughs> quickly for, for me to try and ascertain where this guest is. But scheduled on the show today is John Barker, the co-writer and director of The Umbrella Man, Escape from Robin Island. Now, those of you that follow the show that have been listening for years, last year you know that for Toronto Film Festival, we covered The Umbrella Men. Um, the first film, John Barker was supposed to join us last year for whatever reason he could not, but the producer of the film, one of the producers, Dan Jawitz joined us and we had a fabulous conversation about this fun, fun, fun film. And Dan teased then, ah, you know, we got a sequel coming. Well, here we are a year later and we've got a sequel, The Umbrella Men Escape from Robin Island. With the same, with the original cast, the characters, shot on location in Cape Malay, South Africa. I, it is, this film is as much fun as the original film, but I love the twist that they did with this film and the women. Thank God for the women, um, because this is now them taking charge uh, and uh, getting the guys out of prison on Robin Island. Also joining us, hopefully at the half point of the show, is director Ian Gabriel to talk about his film that premiered at uh, Toronto Film Festival on Saturday, Death of a Whistleblower, a powerhouse of a film. A powerhouse. Um, it is a thriller. It is a slow burn. Again, female-driven. Uh, and... It's drawn from real facts, two time periods in South Africans in South Africa's history, uh, but the story itself is fictionalized. It is, it is riveting. It truly, truly is. Um, so, Pam, do we have um, a PSA or something we can plug in while I try and locate our publicist and see? where John Barker is. Okay, so we're going to take a break. Hopefully I can find our missing director. Okay, well, we have a publicist not answering their phone, and I have sent a text, so we will see what happens. But in the interim, while we're trying to find John Barker, We're going to switch gears here, and we are going to go to Greece. Forget about South Africa. We're going to go to Greece with My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3, which just came out in theaters everywhere on Friday. Third outing, written and directed by Nia Vardalos, and our cast of characters for my big fat Greek wedding fear, all back. You've got Nia as Tula, John Corbett is back as her husband Lan, Louis Mandalore, <coughs> brother Nick, Elena Camparis, Andrea Martin, Maria <coughs> Vakratsis, and I have to tell you, Andrea and Maria are two of the are the two acting reasons to see this film as Aunt Vula and Aunt Frida. A just absolutely great cast, but. The real reason to see My Big Fat Greek Wedding is for the production design by Grant Armstrong and the cinematography by Barry Peterson. Absolutely outstanding on both counts. I was fortunate enough to speak with both of them on Thursday about the film. 
and what they went through to create and immerse us in Greece. This is the first film in the trilogy that we actually go to Greece. We have met this Greek family. We have followed them over the years through the two films. But now they are going to the homeland. And it is visually stunning, visually impressive and immersive. Um, shot The majority was shot on... Uh, the island of Corfu. Uh, there is an incredible, incredible um, tree, two thousand year old tree that is used, very significant in the film and used. There are ancient, an ancient village. There is also a historical village that was built in the seventies. It is a sanctioned historical site. Um, it is just you feel like you are in Greece. And everywhere you look, there is something else of wonder to see, which is where Barry Peterson's cinematography <clears throat> becomes so important. Um, because he, Nobody can capture imagery like Barry in certain instances. I mean, I've been loving his work going back to the days of Hollywood Homicide <clears throat> uh, with Harrison Ford. But he knows how to really celebrate locations, the geographical landscape, the topography, in terms of, and here he reserves his wide screens for ocean views, of which we get many, <clears throat> a mid shot or uh, you know, a little wider than mid, but not a wide shot to encompass the whole big family. Um, the lighting, he really knows how to work with the texture within the air. Uh, many of you have heard me talk about this before, especially when talking with cinematographers, about the texture of the light in the air based on the humidity in the air, the heat in the air, and where we are longitudinally in lati and latitude will affect the kind of air and the light diffusion within it, which impacts what a cinematographer does in terms of his lighting and the logistics. So... Let us take a listen first, too, since the cinematography is dependent upon the production design. Let's take a listen to my interview with production designer Grant Armstrong talking My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. And should we, I hear from anyone about John Barker, we may interrupt this interview and uh, then finish it at the end of the show. But for right now... Let's kick it off with Grant Armstrong, production designer of My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Grant. How are you? I'm very well indeed, thank you. Very well. How are you doing? I am very thrilled to get to speak with you. I, oh, I, that's so sweet. Thank you. I'm, I'm thrilled to speak to you, too. I have been such an admirer of your work as an art director over the decades, and of course, oh, as a production designer, and what you have done... After seeing the film, you and Barry Peterson are the two main reasons to see this film. Oh, well, you better not tell Nia that one. <laughs> <laughs> the work that the two of you have done is exquisite. It is outstanding. And, of course, Barry's work is dependent in large part on what you do. And what you have brought to life here is so immersive, I feel felt like I was on a trip to Greece myself, to the islands. Well, you know what? That was always the plan. And if, if that's how you feel, I feel my job has is, 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 is been successful. So thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. Just, <laughs> but as I'm watching this and knowing something about the topography and the landscape of the islands as it is, yeah. that's a challenge in and of itself, especially when you're making a film. But what you have done here, number one, you've got your logistics in finding the appropriate locations. You have so many different set areas here in yeah. this film. And yeah, yeah. what really impressed me is while the oceanscapes, the beaches, the port, Nikki and Angelo and all the set dress and everything that happens there, what really impresses me is the village itself where they're hanging out. Yeah. And I understand that 
you also created a set. So you married the set with an actual village. Seamlessly, I, I could not tell the difference. Wow. That, that, well, that, that's great. That's good. <laughs> that's, that's good to hear. I mean, yes, you're, you're, you're completely correct. It was uh, the actual main village. We looked at so many different villages in all in everywhere. We, you know, the script actually said it was a neoclassical village up in the mountains. So you know, we had some. I had something to kind of point towards, uh, and so we looked at so many different villages. We had a location manager go to different parts of not just the islands, but uh, northern Greece, western Greece. You name it. We we looked at all kinds. But the one that kind of kept coming up or kept cropping up with all these little villages. Were, which had this style were pretty much in Corfu. So I kind of went over to, to Corfu to scout for, for five days and went to every single village on the, throughout the island. And we, uh, it, so it, it kind of worked out in the fact that we, we filmed in a, uh, the very top of the main village is this little village called uh, Valley of Batardas, which is a tiny little village on the top where you, where you, where you can see, which is a, uh, a tiny little village on the top of this mountain, but the access there was just, you, you, there was just no way you were going to get a full crew or be able to shoot a whole film there. It was just, the access was just never going to work. So we, we mixed, we did some of the exterior stuff there, the big wide shots there, mm -hmm. and then there's also a smaller, uh, there's a, a, a place called Buas Village, which was built in 1977 by this Buas family as a, as a replica of an old uh, Greek village, and and it's still open today for kind of tourism. So I kind of I, I found this place, and it was it, it was like a perfect match. It just kind of really worked as like potatoes, and just in a practical level, it was it, you know it, it lent itself to a uh, to filming, to to having a, a crew, to having the unit there for all the whole all the whole circus was able to be in this in this area. So what it didn't have, it didn't have a town square, it didn't have a house. So literally we had to, uh, we, we built pretty much, we blocked the street off and made it into like a town square where we put the fountain and we put a, a, a row of shops. And then we put two couple more houses to block all the views. So I wanted to try and make it that you could shoot 360 and go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to give Nia that ability just to literally, you can, you can do a steady cam all the way through this village and you, can, you don't have to put any visual effects in. So there were no visual effects in there at all. So, and, we, and then the house itself, the actual interior of the house, we built onto the side of the entrance of the building. So again, it was, it, you know, you could look through the windows and you could see mountains. So it felt real. It, it, that was the whole idea. We just wanted to have something which felt very incredibly real. It was nothing was done on a stage. So it was all done out, uh, done out in reality, really. So it, 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 you could do this full, this full meander right through the whole village and, um, and, and shoot anywhere. So it, and then mixed with the uh, Valle Pitadas and, and another pathway, another little town called Sokraki mm -hmm. we went to, which has the windy roads. Um, so it, it was a mix of three different locations to, to get that village feel. This begs the question, because of the fact you do have some, this is all practical location, just you've built up part of it, but much of this is standing there. You yeah. do an incredible job of embracing the antiquity of the area in terms of the, the building, the finishes of the building, the colors, and yeah. that you carry through. I have to say the interior of the, of the house oh. is just absolutely stunning. And oh. with that greenish color that you chose inside, it's almost like a marine sea blue green. Yeah. So you bring the ocean inside to a degree and you have the very old furnishings that have been there that look like they were there pre-World War One, for most of them. But, you know, even with the plaster finishes, you yeah. have the interior so that it is corresponding with the age, with the aging of the exterior that has been subjected to the elements. How, I mean, that is so key to the immersion that, in this yeah, film, that, and I'm glad, I'm really glad you say that because it, it was key. It was key to that house had to have its own 
had, had to have its, you know, it had to tell the stories. It had to tell a story in itself of of its past, of its, you know, the fact that it used to be a, a family living there and, and, and everyone's moved away. That was the whole idea behind this village. We wanted the village to be a character in the film. So it, 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 just to kind of give that uh, rural sense of... Uh, rural life which is is not quite the same anymore you know because people have had to move out and to find work so that's what that was Nia's um uh, idea from the very beginning this is obviously you know it came from a lot of her family mm-hmm. uh, when she used to visit her father's uh, village so it was it was really was a collaborative uh effort between uh, myself Nia and, and Barry we we had a really clear view and I, I'd say it, it So I could kind of pick up on things. I'd be like, and so I'd be sending them to the set decorator saying, I really love this little idea of all these little sponges on a washing line. And so they're just really quirky little things that you probably don't see every day, but I kind of spotted them because they were a little bit out there. Uh, So it worked really well. And then the set decorator came in with things uh, that she'd found in flea markets and antique shops. So it it was all, we didn't bring anything from anywhere else. It all came from either Corfu or, or centerpieces is also the fountain in the square the fountain is just beautifully rendered you know the sculpture on there the bass relief of the of the you know fountain heads just absolutely stunning grant oh thank you that's that's so so lovely it makes my makes my heart (laughs) (laughs) one of the big things with this film is is the color palette because uh, you know you have the beautiful, the varying colors, depending which way the camera is pointing at the ocean, varying colors of blue, sea blue, aquamarine, green. You yeah. bring, as I mentioned, you bring some of that inside within the house, but then you have pale terracotta colors of the exteriors. You've got yellows, and then you have the costuming that comes in with that Greek blue popping up you know, as a core element in places. Yeah. So I'm curious about the color design, the color palette selection that carries through. And of course that starts with the production design. Yeah. It, 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 in, in a strange way, it, uh, from our initial talks, you know, we, we all know what our, in our a stereotypical image of, of, of a Greek village is. It's the white stucco, it's the white plaster, it's the, it, it, it's the white against the blue. So, of course, we wanted to kind of embrace that. But then the minute we started to, or I started to look at the neoclassical uh, uh, architecture, it's very much in more of a, a, a slightly uh, Italian style. So it, it, it's kind of, that, that's where the, the warmth comes into it, the, the oranges and the ochres and the terracottas. So there, that, there is quite a lot of that influence, uh, which I thought was a great contrast in for the village itself. So we, we, we have this kind of beautiful white and blue, this very stark contrasting world that we all know Greece is, but also this softer, warmer, uh, rust, more rustic, kind of feel uh, mm-hmm. for, for the village itself, uh, just to kind of make it more homely, more warm, uh, and, and just give it a little bit more of a uh, 
So you know, I wouldn't say dilapidated, but it, 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 it has a story. This is a village that literally had uh, so many stories. It's had so much life, and it's slightly gone. It, it, the life has been drained from it from what when everyone's moved away. So it, it, there's so many contrasts that we wanted to try and do. It was the, the, that blues, the blues and the whites, but against this warm palace for this uh, for the village itself. So that's kind of where it came from. That's mm -hmm. the idea where it came from. Well, I think one of the only uh, scenes where we actually see the stark, bright, bright, bright white that we know Greece for is the chapel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Other than that, we've got these the the warmth coming out. So we get the Mediterranean. We feel the sun. We got the sand. We have the timelessness of thousands of years of history. You really brought it all together in your design, Grant. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you, Deb. That, that's, that's, again, that's really lovely to hear. Thank you. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this the first time you've ever had to worry about production design and designing a pen for chickens and goats uh, and things? <laughs> this is my this is this is actually my third production design show. Actually it's my fourth I did one a really small film a long time ago. But this is my kind of third proper film. Uh, and it, it's yeah, it, it to be fair, it didn't feel uh, it didn't feel like anything I was not used to. I, I've been doing, you know, I've been lucky enough to work in, the, in this business for 32 years now. So I've kind of worked my way through the art department from being an art department junior to an assistant to an assistant art director to an art director to an art director supervising. So I've done, I've done the whole gamut of, of, of the actual work within the art department. And it just felt a natural progression for me. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to give it a go. And so. Yeah, it, it was. It, it, I've worked with a lot of amazing directors, a lot of great producers, a lot of great production designers. So I've, I've seen. I've, I've, I feel lucky enough that I've been able to take a little bit from from each of them, I suppose, to give myself um, the knowledge that's required, just in practical terms and visual terms. So, because it's not all about just about visuals, there's so much practicality that's involved in it of uh, what's going to work, what's going to work for the crew, how do we get the crew there. So it's it, there's always so many aspects to to locations, especially locations uh, that you need to take into consideration. So, and I, I do feel this was a natural progression for me working on a on a show where literally it, it was pretty much a location based show with builds inside. Uh, just to find the right place, just to find the right practical times, because you or it was it was a small, fairly small production. But you know the, the time is limited, so you yeah. have to kind of make the right decision that will work for for everybody, for all departments, and uh, and especially for what's on screen. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess if you can do art direction with the Muppets, designing a, a pen for chickens and and goats is not going to be too challenging for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you did, as you said, you went all over Corfu, yeah. checking all the locations yeah. and all. Yeah. What would you say was the most challenging location to find? Because I have to think that possibly finding that old olive tree yeah. had to be looking for a needle in a haystack. It was. It, it was exactly that it was like looking at a needle and a haystack uh we had our location scouts scouring the island uh and again i go back to you know we can't be too far away so we couldn't go you know two hours away because it just wasn't going to be worked practically uh, mm -hmm. for a day filming so we uh, we went to a couple of different uh olive groves uh, we went to the place where we actually filmed in the end uh, the governor olive, of olive press and said if you haven't got any old you haven't got any old uh, olive trees here and he said uh, oh yeah we've got a few old ones there you know, they're about 1,500, 2,000 years old, and we're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it was like, can we go there right now? And uh, so we literally got in a, we got in the, in the minibus, in the, the uh, in the vans, and off about five minutes down the road, and we saw these pretty much, there's a group of about four or five of them, uh, four or five old olive trees, and everybody's jaw just dropped. It was It was one of those moments of, Oh my goodness! 
this is it's, it, it was magical it was pretty magical and it's like okay tick that one off it was it was amazing <laughs> it was a lot of it was it was a bit it was i think um somebody was looking down on us that day I think most definitely. Obviously. The gods up at Mount Olympus were smiling yeah, down on you. They were smiling down most certainly. They now, were certainly smiling down. A question for you, Grant. You find a location like that for a 2,000-year-old olive tree. Is yeah. there anything that you then have to do from a production design standpoint with that location? Do you have to have things cleared out, brush cleared away, anything like that? Or is it just this is... It we're gonna plop no, people it, down it, and it, shoot. It was fairly minimal, to be fair. It, but there was uh, there was clearing, and we actually took some of the. There were a couple originally. There were a couple of dead branches on the on the tree, so we did actually trim certain things. Uh, and there, there were you know there was, there was another tree that had fallen down, so we, we had to clear quite a lot of an area. And there's a bit a little scene where they come and sit on the wall where we mm -hmm. constructed that wall. Uh, so yes, there were there were certain certain things. There's, you can very rarely do you actually just walk into a location and it's absolutely perfect. So there was clearing, there was brush to clear out, there was trees and logs to clear out. But uh, pretty much, I think our our uh, location team sorted a great deal of that out for that actual location and the actual uh, the olive uh, people who own the the land. They actually did quite a bit of the work there. Curious because of the age the antiquity, the historical importance of the entire region going yeah. back thousands and thousands of years. And here you are, yes, you're in the one, you're shooting in the one place that was actually built as a, a site back in the 70s, but you have authentic villages, you have 2,000-year-old trees. This entire area, does that, because of the age and the idea of preservation, does that impact your design work at all and in your thought process and considerations for what the film needs versus what you can actually do without damaging history, so to speak? Yeah, I think I think it does. I, I think I don't think it's foremost at the foreground of, of, of the design process, but I do think it's certainly an aspect in there. You know, you travel around these villages and you, 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 you're looking and you're trying to, you, you're trying to get an atmosphere. You're trying to, that's, that's really what I wanted to try and create was the, was the atmosphere for this village. Just finding that, that right mood that basically had showed the history, showed the fact that there were still people working. It's still a, a, a working village somewhat, uh, but then has still, so much potential for for bringing people back to bringing life back to it so yeah you do you definitely appreciate the history and you want to show the uh it, it, you know there's a lot of modern buildings in in, in corfu and there's like there's certainly even in the village there's a, there's a few modern buildings you want to show the history you want to show that you want to bring that out uh as, as much as possible because in, in a in to be Brutally frank, the the older buildings are so much nicer than the newer ones. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they're still I standing. Say, I, can't say, I can't say fairer than that. They're actually they're, they're beautiful. So uh, and they just don't make them like they used to. So yes, absolutely. You, what I wanted to create this this historical uh, this historical world that had so much so many stories to tell, and um, yeah, yeah, and try and avoid anything because as new as possible to give it that authenticity. Now, I would be remiss not to ask you, Grant, about the entire wedding sequence with yeah. the parades, the decor, the candles. My God, the candles, <laughs> setting up that whole altar area. Talk to me about that process because that truly is an exquisite sequence, especially when we see the altar for the first time. Well, we, we we actually built that altar. We actually built the uh, the. We, we couldn't find any ruins. It would be it was scripted. Nia really wanted to do the. Uh, it, she didn't want to concentrate on the wedding at all. Really, it was really as a. Uh, there had to be a wedding. Obviously, it's called my big factory wedding. But the, so she wanted to do it within a. Uh, environment with, with old ruins and so we looked at different ruins in, in Corfu and we went to different churches uh, and again because it's a small sequence we ended up building it 
building all the ruins very near to to our village so it could be done at the end of the day uh and yeah i suppose from day one it was all about i mean the first two films for me it's all about the end sequences and the weddings that's what people are really i think going for mm -hmm. they're expecting uh, a, a big party at the end and that's what i wanted to create and it's that world it was also the mixing of the uh from the syrian wedding to mm -hmm. the greek wedding that kind of mix of of uh of the two worlds together um and that that was really what i wanted to do with the magic art the evil eyes and the lanterns the syrian lanterns the more arabic kind of world so it's that real mix of cultures is was, was the plan uh and uh, yeah, so we, we went for it. We, we went for it. I wanted to make it, the village, literally come to life at the end. That, that was really, really the plan, the idea. It certainly did. And under the moonlight, with all the candlelight, it was magical. Absolutely magical, Grant. Great. Thank um, you. Well, <laughs> Grant, this has been such a delight getting to talk to you about your work on My Big Fat Greek Thank Wedding you, 3. Yeah. Thank you so much. As I, as I said, your work in Barry's. This is the reason to see the film, I'm telling you. Okay, well, okay. Well, you know what? That's fine by me. That's fine oh. by me. Oh, Grant, thank you so much. And I hope we get to do this again in the future. I hope so as well. I look forward to it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye, Debbie. Bye-bye. And that was Grant Armstrong, production designer for My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. I, the film really is so beautiful, and so much of it is the way Grant has embraced the history and the past of Greece, uh, which is then complemented by Barry. Now, both of these interviews will be up on BehindTheLensOnline.net, uh, if not later today, at uh, by tomorrow afternoon, so that you can hear both of them back-to-back, -back, since they do essentially piggyback each other. Uh, given the the meshing of and interdependency of their work. Now, if you're watching the show right now on the Adrenaline Radio Facebook page, um, you may notice we do have some swag courtesy of Focus features here for My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3, including my favorite, and thank you very much, Focus, a bottle of Windex. Because for anybody that knows the franchise, Windex is good for everything. Windex solves every issue. Um, so, and as it so happened, I ran out of Windex on Sunday before I screened the film on Wednesday. So, thank you, Focus. Now, we are still experiencing... A heck of a mess coming out of Toronto here, people, and I apologize for that. Um, we are, okay, finally got hold of the publicist. John Barker will not be joining us. He has phone issues and airport issues. Uh, trying to see if Ian Gabriel is going to be joining us. Um, who initially confirmed and then failed to reconfirm with the publicist to talk about <laughs> death of a whistleblower. And Anthony Osiemi is on standby trying to connect, um, get him to connect with us. He is the main antagonist uh, in director of a whistleblower. And it seems okay. There's, oh, wait. Uh, pop us on hold for a second here. Well, I'll be right back with you. You have an interlude right now with Pam. Okay, and we are working on resolving the phone issue here uh, out of Toronto. Um, Heaven only knows, because we have had people call in from Toronto before. We've had people calling in live from Ireland, the UK. Timur Bekmanmatov called in from Moscow live. So I don't know what the phone issues are with uh, people at TIFF right now. 
But um, we're going to have to move on just in case. And now we're go- we're going to move to Ireland. <laughs> That's all there is to it. We're going to we're going to move to uh, we're going to Sorry this did not turn out to be the South African filmmaker celebration today people. Uh especially with these two films. But looks like we are going to move to Ireland right now. Going back in time to the 1970s, 1975 specifically. And my interview with co-writers, co-directors, Charles and Thomas Gard. The film is Deadshot. It is the story of a retired Irish paramilitary wit- uh, gentleman who wit- he witnesses the fatal shooting of his pregnant wife by an SAS officer. He is now on the run, but he is determined to take revenge for, you know, what was done to his wife. And this is, it's a very much a cat and mouse uh, story structure. As he is seeking revenge, he aligns himself with one faction. Because you have to remember that 1975 in Ireland, this is very much, this is a time of the Troubles. And uh, it was a very tumultuous period, a very treacherous and dangerous period. And what's interesting is that Charles and Thomas Gard avoid they stay away from the tr- dealing with the troubles uh itself but they focus on how the tenor and situation of the country how it affected individuals and the repetitive cycle of violence that was promulgating and propagating things an, an amazing cast amazing cast amal amin um is plays the sergeant uh, who shot the pregnant woman. Then we have Colin Morgan, who plays the former paramilitary whose wife was murdered. Felicity Jones pops in. Mark Strong, uh, he heads a police anti-terror terror squad, um, and he recruits the sergeant for his team. Then we have Tom Von Lawler, who is on the opposite side of the fence, and he recruits Colin Morgan's character of Michael O'Hara. Very interesting dynamics happening here. Um, so, without any further ado, we're going to go to Ireland now, and you can hear my exclusive interview with Charles and Thomas Gard talking about the revenge thriller, Deadshot. Very exciting to speak with the two of you about Deadshot. I did not know what to expect with this film. Most films that you see that are set during the period of the Troubles go very heavy on a military-type aspect of the bombings themselves that were happening all throughout the, the land. What you do here is you rely on your production design, your costume design, and your location to set us in that time period without focusing on the war, so to speak. And you focus on the individuals, how the circumstances affect specific individuals within the cycle of violence that was occurring for so long. And I love that approach. That's great to hear. That's really wonderful to hear. I mean, that's definitely... We, I mean, we we obviously we grew up um, we grew up with uh, on our mother's side of the family we have quite a lot of Irish um, family and um, we we were always intrigued by films about we loved films about the troubles and um, the the kind of stories that you're referring to we you know. They, they're, they're fantastic films, and they're, they're always involving really interesting characters. But when we started working on this, we kind of felt that the the politics of the troubles and the specificity of the troubles is it just didn't doesn't feel as relevant to today mm-hmm. as um, as perhaps the the kind of the the individual aspect of or impact that that. 
the violence and the people that were involved and, and caught up in this, uh, th those stories feel incredibly relevant today. Um, so we purposely sort of resisted uh, getting too embroiled in, in the specificity of, of um, you know, who creates the sides, uh, or rather, like, whose side is right in favor of perhaps um, what's, what's really kind of eating away, what, what's creating this problem and what's sort of, um, what's causing these men to do these things. And, and that kind of, that seemed to us far more relevant to, to today that, that, you know, looking, looking at the story almost from a kind of point of view of toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. And we we really see that play out. And this is where your casting is so important, bringing in Mark Strong as Holland. Because Mark is so imposing anyway, in whatever role you put him in, that it's very easy to see how he could coerce Tempest. And this is real. this really comes out about how the cycle of violence is perpetuated because you have people like Holland, you have people like Tom, uh, Tom Von Lawler's Keenan, and they look for those opportunities and those people that really don't want to be part of the violent cycle or they just want to start again or they're lost and they prey upon them. And we see that here so that we really can hone in on the individuals. And I love that. We're very glad to hear that because we, we thought it was very exciting to... Um, Dramatically speaking, we we were really interested in characters like Keenan and um, and Holland exploiting uh, emotions, exploiting Michael's um, grief, and exploiting uh, Tempest's guilt, mm -hmm. um, and channeling those emotions, kind of taking advantage of them, and then actually using them to for their own ends, for their own darker ends. And that felt a kind of very interesting um, uh, path for us, dramatically speaking. Yeah, I think it was a brilliant way to go, guys, really. But then again, all of this, what makes the story itself work so well is the fact, the authenticity that you achieved in picking that mid-1970s, 1975 time period, and you steep us in it. We know at all times where we are. In the, t in the historical timeline without having to tell us. Uh, and it's kudos to your production designer, to Tom Sayer, and to your costumer, Ellie Wilson. What <clears throat> I particularly enjoy and appreciate with their work, especially Ellie's, is 1975 was such a pivotal time in fashion. She could have gone off the rails so that the fashion, the clothing could have screamed out Okay, we're in 1975, we're in the UK. And she didn't do that. She brought in a very timeless look, which also coincides with what Tom does when you bring in your picture cars and all of this, because UK very much still had the vestiges, the visual vestiges from World War II. And while moving forward, so you've got this great eclectic blend of the eras coming together. And Tom and Ellie really embraced that and brought that to life. Yeah, and we, we were very, yeah, we were thrilled with, um, we were thrilled with it all. I mean, the, what we were trying to do with, with uh, creating that timeless look, I mean, we, are, we showed Ellie lots of um, uh, references and, and, and kind of talked about the film almost as an urban western to her. So. We, and that, because that's what we sort of felt, that if you look at it like an urban western and you see it as sort of guys duking it out, then you can't, it sort of immediately puts you, takes you away from, from the kind of uniforms that you associate with, you know, with, with that, with people involved in the troubles and stuff. And, and what we all expected to see, we just, we really resisted. What were some of the influences and conversations like uh, with Tom and Ellie to help build this world? 
we were always going for a quite a down feeling um, film that reflected the times of uh, reflected the very harsh economic times of the early 70s in London and, and the UK. I mean, at that time, there were many, many strikes. There were there was a shortage of sugar. They couldn't even get sugar in cafes. I mean, it was there were bomb sites from the war that hadn't been developed, and they were just empty sites that children used to play in with burnt-out cars and fires. And we really kind of wanted to bring this almost collapsed city feel um, that you would perhaps in America associate with places like Detroit in the 70s or 80s. It was London was very similar in some ways. And um, so we stripped out all the color. And very early on, we decided that we really wanted to just have very little colors uh, apart from red and really make the reds quite ominous when they appeared um, and quite uh, memorable. And so that was kind of an early an early decision we made. And it was, it was great to work that through uh, with Tom and he worked that into all the sets and even the picture cars we were very careful not to have too many bright picture cars uh, so we kind of tried to control everything really but just in a quite a natural way well and this is where your cinematographer matthias rude his work is outstanding on this film i'm guessing that you guys went with anamorphic lenses because of the time period it helps give us this grit i love that you keep us you have very, 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 very few extreme close-ups. You keep us in mid to wide shots so that we always are immersed in the world, but it's not being shoved in anybody's faces. It lets us focus on the individuals, which quite often are framed in the center of the screen. So we really can hone in on and make that emotional connection. But from the grit, to the grain, to the framing and the blocking, it all works beautifully. And I'm detecting a lot of either handheld or shoulder rigging here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we didn't actually shoot on anamorphic lenses. We shot on wow. lenses. But we were on, um, we were shooting on the Sony Venice, which was the first time okay. actually that we used that camera. We, uh, we've um, historically, well, traditionally, we, we've uh, we've stayed with the Alexa. But um, Matthias really kind of um, he really championed the the Sony Venice and and the real the, the thing that sealed the deal for us with that was the Rialto mode because we were able to kind of um, to really shrink the camera down to kind of almost like just the size of a lens really mm -hmm. with, with a little small packet on the back of it. Um, I mean it was obviously fed via an umbilical cord to the uh, to the main camera, but. What that allowed us to do was shoot in in really really tiny cars where you know those seventies cars are small <laughs> and the the locations the real locations like the location that uh, the scene uh, after the confrontation with Keenan the scene where Catherine and Michael are uh, sort of trapped in a in a kind of corridor it's like a corridor kitchen slash bathroom. That you almost we found it and we couldn't really believe that it existed because it was so 70s it was sort of it had a loo at the end and then it had a sort of a, a kitchen a kitchenette sort of thing and it was basically in a two walls between two walls that, that effectively were a corridor and we absolutely fell in love with the location because it kind of reminded us of you know it, it, it felt like the, the characters themselves were kind of in a vice and the walls were just closing in on them. And that, the, you know, being able to shoot in a location like that with the with the Sony Venice and the Real, in Rialto mode was, was absolutely amazing. And yeah, we, we went with handheld partly because we just, we love, we love the energy that handheld brings. Mm -hmm. We wanted to tell the story in a very energized and um, kind of uh, front-footed, uh, bring the audience really to the front of their seats so they're always kind of slightly gripped by your dreading kind of what's, what's happening, what's around the corner and, and creating that, that sense of spontaneity that you really associate with 70s movies. Part of that spontaneity also comes in with your action. You've got some great action set pieces happening here, guys. 
we actually shot this film. I mean, we we, we had to hold on to those because we originally, like when when the film when we went into production production, we had five weeks and three days, and because of the because some COVID delays, it, it ended up kind of growing a little bit. But, <laughs> but um, to a certain extent, those that time that it grew in was already, you know, the, the, the shooting schedule was baked in to, to the five weeks and three days. So it was, it was brutal how we were kind of chopping things around. Just an amazing job. And to pull off the, a lot of those action sequences, I know how time-consuming they can be. And especially when you're dealing with small cons- confined spaces, as happens in quite a few of the scenes that you have. So I am just beyond impressed with what you have pulled off here. Thank you very much. So one last question for you guys. I've got to ask you, you know, this is what your second feature now. This is a great departure from The Uninvited. So what did you each learn about yourselves as filmmakers? as storytellers that you can now take forward into future productions? A very good question. Um, I think, um, I think it was, uh, David, we always, when we were making The Unadvised in Los Angeles, David Lynch used to have a radio show and it was a great better report on it for about five minutes. And it was one of our favorite moments, moments of the day because he give a weather report and invariably it was always the same weather report in Los Angeles so there was nothing very interesting about the weather because it was <laughs> always great um, but then he'd always had some little David Lynchian aphorism or some little nugget of advice or pearl of wisdom and one of them was water finds a way and um, we really took that to heart on this film it kind of we kept talking about water finds a way and I know that sounds really abstract, but it was just trusting the story that trusting the story that that is going to take you where it needs to take you. And if you listen to the story and you, and you listen to the characters, uh, the water droplet works its way down, and eventually it becomes a stream, and then hopefully it gets takes you to the sea. And um, that's something that we hope to take forward onto the next film. Um, mm. And would the other half of this and, brilliant and team girl, agree? And, and working, one of the most satisfying things beyond building, constructing the world, which we really, really did enjoy, um, even even on a shoestring, uh, was was working with, with such an amazing ensemble cast, really. We, we really enjoyed, uh, we enjoyed all the actors that we worked with. We really enjoyed the characters and exploring those characters in, in uh, you know having more time to to spend with the characters is something that we would love to take forward into the next film because that definitely you know if, if we could have had a bit more time with the characters uh, in this film then then um, it, it would have been kind of interesting to explore some of those some of the you know some of the aspects of the internal aspects of that. I Kath, the character of Catherine I'm fascinated by. I would love to see more um, yeah. about her and that dynamic with her father. What, what kind of intrigued us with, with, those, with the female characters was how important women have been in, in the context of the Troubles and how, how ultimately it's so often it's the women, because the men sort of destroy themselves, it's kind of very often the women who... Who decide really whether whether this thing lives, whether this thing continues to have legs, and that's very much what we were trying to explore with with both Catherine and Ruth, because obviously Catherine is left with uh, with this this information that effectively puts her almost back in in the driving seat that that Michael was found himself in at the beginning, which is your father is dead, and what are you going to do about it? And mm-hmm. Exactly the same is true of Ruth. You know, you sort of she's it's it's just in reverse, but it's it's very it's very much a mirror of what what happened to to Michael at the beginning of the story. So we kind of we, we sort of thought that was a really interesting way of ending the film. If if we had been exploring kind of 
masculinity throughout the film to sort of end it with the women. Because mm-hmm. they're the only ones that live. They're the only ones that survive. So how are they going to survive and what are they going to do about it? Now, isn't that always the case? The women are the ones that survive? Always. Because men, you know, men, the primitive species, we kind of destroy each other. That's right. You got to give it to the women, guys. <laughs> we were trying. You Some did. <laughs> you did. But if you ever explore this era again... Dig into a character like Catherine, like Ruth. I I think you guys, in your hands, I think it would be brilliant. That's very much what we want to do with, with the next one. We, we kind of want to explore it more from a, not, not the same subject matter or, or sort of world, but the next story. We're, we're, I mean, we're very intrigued by kind of female characters. Um, so, and, and we love, we kind of, you know, we love women. So we, we, we have very important women in our lives and, and we'd love to do something that explores kind of female characters. Well, whatever you do, I can't wait to see it. And I hope we get to talk again in the future. That would be great. We'd love that. Guys, thank you so, so much. And job, very well done. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend. Thanks a lot. Cheers, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that was my exclusive interview with Charles and Thomas Gard, co-writers, co-directors of Deadshot, uh, also co-written with Ronan Bennett, and based on his book, Road to Balcom Street. Uh, one thing that Charles and Thomas and I did not get to talk about was the editing. Uh, which was done by their brother, Ted, Ted Gard. And I have to say, the editing is so well-paced to really build up the tension as we go back and forth between the character of Sergeant Tempest, the character of Michael, and the influences that are affecting each of them. Um, Very, very well done in terms of an escalating tension and build-up. So, Deadshot, it's out now. It's on, it's on Prime Video. It's on a few other of the digital places. Uh, I think all of them at this point. Um, but check it out. And don't forget, you can always get the book, Road to Balcom Street, on which this is based. I always love to be able to read the book and see a film. Generally, I like to read the book first and see how the adaptation is done, but sometimes time doesn't permit that, uh, such as in this case for me with Deadshot. But I highly recommend it. So that is all the time we had today. I am sorry for our entire show. This is this is what happens with live broadcasting, be it television or radio. Um, you got to go with the flow. Unfortunately, our South African filmmakers, uh, due to phone issues, and then I got another update that one, let's see. We have phone issues and then a delayed flight. Um, So who knows what's going on up there in Canada. But nevertheless, we persevered. You got to hear some great interviews from Charles and Thomas about Deadshot and, of course, Grant Armstrong about My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3, which is in theaters right now. Um, as I said, the interviews of Grant and also Barry Peterson, the cinematographer on My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3, will be up on BehindTheLensOnline.net later this afternoon or tomorrow, as will my exclusive with Charles and Thomas Gard, along with quite a few others. So, quickly before we go, I just want to give a shout-out to birthday boy Greg Srizavazdi. Uh, those of you that have been with us since the beginning, Greg originally, uh, Greg originally co-hosted Behind the Lens with me uh, when we first started out. Before family commitments, he had to beg off because of the drive. And uh, now he has his own podcast, uh, Cinematics. So find it. Look it up. But happy birthday to Greg. So next week... Uh, We have two people in the United States scheduled to be with us live. So hopefully we won't have any travesties uh, next week. So until then, 
I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. 